Hey everyone, welcome to episode three of the Proactive IT Podcast. This week, the latest and greatest in IT and cybersecurity news, HIPAA compliant security risk assessment myths and EHR best practices, law firm data retention and reporting in Connecticut, and finally, last but not least, Blue Keep rears its ugly head again. So without further ado, this podcast is brought to you by Nuage Tech, a HIPAA-compliant, client-focused IT consultant located in sunny central Connecticut. It's very cold today, by the way. You can find us at nuagetech.com. That's N-W-A-J-Tech.com. Uh, each week, we talk about the latest in tech and cyber news, compliance, and more. We also bring you real-world examples to learn from so you can better protect your business and identity. Uh, we are not doing a HIPAA case or a law firm case study today, but uh, we do have lots, lots of stuff to share with you. So um, you will not go without information today, I can promise you. So first, as always, we talk about Patch Tuesday updates. Um, so we'll start with Microsoft. Windows updates are being finalized, possibly to be released to the wild on November 12th. Um, the November 2019 update is different than Microsoft's usual major updates. Instead of requiring a large download and being delivered through a standalone release, the November 2019 update will be delivered just like a normal Patch Tuesday release. The November 2019 update doesn't have as many new features as previous major updates. Instead, it focuses on fixing bugs, improving performance, and introducing minor new features. So no Microsoft Patch Tuesday update this week, possibly next week, looks like. Um, so by the time you're hearing this, you may be getting ready to uh, release some patches, hopefully to fix some of the bugs in previous updates. Uh, I have a laptop, as I mentioned in previous episodes, that if I let the updates install, the laptop keeps blue screening. Um, there is one other update I do want to mention today. Last Friday, so a week ago as of this recording, critical Google Chrome vulnerability was addressed by Google with the latest update, so the latest version is 78.0.3904.87. Um, it's really easy to update Google Chrome if it's not already being managed by your IT. Um, just open Google Chrome, click, click the three dots on the top right, click settings, click about Chrome, and it will begin the update process for you. So make sure you're up to version 78. 0.3904.87. One of those vulnerabilities is being actively exploited. So it is important to update um, immediately. Immediately. I sent an email to my to my email list yesterday letting them know to update immediately. Um if you and if you are managed by Noage Tech, if you are one of our clients, then you've already been updated. You were updated as soon as the update came out. All right, so that's it for Patch Tuesday. In cybersecurity news, we have quite a bit to share. Some good, some bad, some interesting. So first I want to mention that on uh, LinkedIn, phishing, uh, they used to call it in-mail. I don't think they're calling it in-mail anymore. But phishing attempts are on the rise. Uh, so um, I have not received any, but I know of, of quite a few peers who have received phishing emails 
in their inbox on LinkedIn. Now, obviously, if you're using phishing, anti-phishing uh, protection, it's not going to catch LinkedIn. So you, you're, that's where the education comes into play. It's real simple. The, the campaign we're going to be st launching sometime next year, think before you click. Before you click on anything in LinkedIn or Facebook for that matter or any other social media platform, think. Do you, do you, do you know the sender? Uh, can you manually type in the address? Is this really something important? Um, would, would a vendor contact you via those platforms? Just things like that. Think before you click. And so that's going to be on a different website. That'll be think, B, the number four, youclick.com. The domain, the website is, is just a landing page for now, but um, that will be coming next year. So think before you click on LinkedIn with uh, a rise in an uptick in phishing attempts via inbox on LinkedIn, formerly known as InMail. I don't know, again, if it's called that still. All right. In actual news now, New York Health System to pay $3 million in a HIPAA fine. Uh, this was due to two incidents. This is University of Rochester Medical Center. In New York. So normally when you hear the HIPAA fines, it's because of a data breach. You know, somebody hacked in, somebody gained access to emails, somebody grabbed paper records that they shouldn't have had. You know, that's the normal stuff. This is um, a tale of why you should encrypt every device. So in 2017, the uh, Rochester Medical Center, University of Rochester Medical Center, reported that a flash drive was uh, missing. Um, let me see. Uh, yeah, it just says they reported a breach to the agency after the loss of an unencrypted flash drive. So no, no, no indication that it was stolen. But you know, it could have been. And then shortly after that, okay, okay so I'm sorry. In 2013, the flash drive was reported stolen. So six years ago, 2013, the flash drive was stolen. In 2017, the or I'm sorry, the flash drive was missing. They don't know if it was stolen or or if it's just missing. Um, it's pretty easy to lose a flash drive. I do it sometimes myself. My flash drives don't contain PHI, though. In 2017, uh, a laptop was also reported lost. Um, again, no indication that it was stolen. But here's the thing. Those events by themselves wouldn't, wouldn't have been fined by the OCR. They would not have said, okay, here's a fine, $3 million pay up. What caused them to be fine was the fact that neither one of those devices was encrypted. And then it's really simple to encrypt, you know, a flash drive. You, you just need third-party software, and there's tons of it out there. On a Windows laptop, you, if, it's, um, if it's a newer laptop, and by newer I mean within the last few years, then you should be able to set up BitLocker without an issue. But even if you can't set up BitLocker for whatever reason, there are third-party um, encryption software out there. So something that takes only a few minutes to set up um, cost University of Rochester Medical Center $3 million. Now, again, this happened in 2013 and 2017. So obviously, again, it takes time for the OCR to investigate, determine what the fine is, potentially negotiate. I don't see any indication that this was negotiated. Um, so, you know, it, it, yes, you need, the, you need the security, you need the education, but you also need encryption on all of your devices, especially ones that could walk very easily. 
So again, University of Rochester Medical Center fined $3 million because of two devices not being encrypted. If they were stolen or you know, lo- reported lost as they reported, and they were encrypted, then probably wouldn't be any fines. Next piece of news, angel investor sues over SIM swapping hacks. So I talked really quickly last week, I believe, about um, Jack Dorsey's incident where his Twitter account was compromised because of SIM swapping. So SIM swapping essentially is a an attacker will call your cell carrier service provider, so, you know, Verizon's, AT&T's, T-Mobile's of the world, Sprint, and say that um, basically port the legitimate user's phone number to a new SIM. And once they now have that access to that phone number, they're able to use two-factor authentication. So in Jack Dorsey's case, you know, they, they, SIM, they did a SIM swap scam on him, then they try to log into Twitter. Twitter uses two-factor authentication. It goes to a text message. The the hacker, the it's not really a, a or I guess it could be a hack, but um, you know the attacker now is getting the two-factor authentication text messages, and they're able to log in. So the same thing happened to Greg Bennett, an angel investor. He sued Bitrix, the cryptocurrency exchange, uh, because if Essentially, what it comes down to is why are we using SMS for um, two-factor authentication is what it comes down to, right? Why can't we use soft keys? Why do Twitter and Bittrex still use SMS for two-factor authentication? So he's suing because because of the SIM swap hack, they, the crook stole 100 Bitcoin, which, which is worth roughly $1 million. So quite a bit of money there that he, he lost. He's going. He's suing Bitrix, um, claiming that Bitrix could have stopped but didn't stop the attack, which happened on April fifteenth. So this is another case, by the way, of of maybe lack security. April fifteenth is tax day in the United States, so maybe they got um, they got a hold of somebody at the cell carrier, the service provider for their cell phone, who. Maybe they're newer. Maybe they're light staffed because, you know, I, I don't know if that if we schedule less people on tax day, but I, I do know that people may be focused on getting their taxes done rather than doing their actual job. So cryptocurrency, I'm sorry. So, uh, yeah, angel investor for a cryptocurrency exchange. Angel An angel investor sues over SIM swapping hack um, because his cryptocurrency exchange account was uh, robbed of 100 Bitcoin. So another case to get rid of SMS for two-factor authentication. This one I saw this morning. So this is kind of more my industry, managed service providers. ConnectWise Automate uh, is reporting that malicious actors are targeting uh, ConnectWise Automate accounts. And they're recommending that you you close up any ports that are not being used per their internet best practices. Um, we've seen a few cases of this year of MSPs being targeted through their remote monitoring and management software. And so that's what ConnectWise Automate is, an RMM. And they are telling their users that they are being targeted 
and that you need to pa you need to close any ports that are not um, not being used you know sh over the internet so if you have a, a port facing the internet that's open and we're going to talk about blue keep and another port in a little bit um, then you need to close that and they have a you know they have best practices on their site so you should you should definitely um, if you're using ConnectWise Automate or if your IT vendor is using ConnectWise Automate I would recommend that you make sure they're aware of this um, and they should be of course following NIST cybersecurity framework and then um, sort of a weird incident I guess two cybersecurity two security testers so these are legitimate white hat ethical hackers uh, they're arrested because they while doing a job they were in, they were engaged to do some penetration testing in um, Iowa and got arrested breaking into a courthouse so there was some confusion as to whether or not they should have been breaking into the to the courthouse uh, because local law enforcement was not informed of this so whenever you're doing a security uh, basically a penetration test is what it's called so penetration test ahead of time you are you, you a document is created to um, so that all parties involved understand the scope of the penetration test so whether or not you could test physical uh, physical property um, whether or not you can rep you know what you what what's off limits what's not is basically what what should be agreed to before the penetration test begins and uh, by all indications the company the security provider which is called coal fire um, did review what was to be what was open to this penetration testing ahead of time however for some reason local law enforcement was not informed and because of that, the two pen testers, the two uh, security personnel that were performing the tests were detained. Uh, eventually, eventually they were released. The coal fire took care of the, uh, the bail money. And, um, they, and they, so they report that they did do this with another courthouse earlier and did not... To, um, did not get arrested so it's it's not clear why the second time they did you know who knows but so there's some work to be done there the the point there is to make sure that if you have a security firm coming in to do penetration testing to make sure that um, you're as secure as possible there needs to be clear guidelines as to what is off limits and what is not and um, any party that could potentially be impacted needs to be advised now obviously with a pen test you also want to consider that what you're really testing is are your employees or or third party are they are they prepared to handle and I guess in this case they were but are they prepared to handle any incidents and um, so you know obviously law enforcement was able to this time but there should have been some somewhere in the chain of command, someone should have known that this was going on. So hopefully that is the case and that this thi this whole thing goes away for those two security pen testers. Because we wouldn't, we, I wouldn't want to have that on my, on my record going forward, just simply doing my job. 
so that's it for cybersecurity news this week. There was quite a bit of news um, that I did not report, so maybe I'll touch on it during the week. Maybe I'll, you know, Instagram Live or LinkedIn or something. I don't know. Won't be Facebook. Facebook is just um, as of late. It's just too much drama with political stuff. So I've I've not on Facebook quite as much. All right, so now the meat of our show. We're going to talk about a few different things that I hope uh, you guys can take away and use in your IT and compliance and security life. Uh, The first one for healthcare practices, the top 10 myths regarding SRA, which is Security Risk Assessment for Healthcare Practices. Um, So these are myths that were put together by healthit.gov. And probably stuff, I hear some of this sometimes, so it's probably stuff that they've heard and they want to clear up. The first, so top 10 myths of security risk analysis. Sorry, I said assessment, but it's security risk analysis. The first one, security risk analysis is optional for small providers. This is false, of course. Any, even a one-person provider needs to do a security risk analysis. All providers who are covered entities, which would be any medical, any healthcare practice, under HIPAA are required to perform a risk analysis. In addition, all providers who want to receive EHR incentive payments must conduct a risk analysis. So EHR incentive payments, if you're using electronic health records, um, there are there are incentive plans. I think they're not as much as they used to be when they first rolled out EHRs and they were encouraging healthcare providers to use them. The, the incentives were probably a lot more more healthcare practices are using them, but they're still not using them the right way. And what I mean by that is they'll ask patients to fill out documents in, in the waiting room, take those documents, and then put them into the EHR. There's still a paper document floating around, but you know that's that's for another show. Number two, simply installing a certified EHR fulfills the security risk analysis MU requirement. This is also false. Even with a certified EHR, you must perform a full security risk analysis, along with a HIPAA audit, by the way. Security requirements address all electronic protected health information you maintain, not just what is in your EHR. So again, if you have paper documents or you're, you know, maybe you're using another soft piece of software for your calendar, or you have emails, that's why you have to do a security risk analysis. Number three, my EHR vendor took care of everything I need to do about privacy and security. Also false. Your EHR vendor may be able to provide information, assistance, and training on the privacy and security aspects of the EHR product. However, EHR vendors are not responsible for making their products compliant with HIPAA privacy and security rules. It is solely your responsibility to have a complete risk analysis conducted. Number four, I have to I have to outsource the security risk analysis. This is also false. You can do it internally if you have the resources to do it. It is possible for small practices to do a risk analysis themselves using self-help tools. However, doing a thorough and professional risk analysis that will stand up to a compliance review will require expert knowledge that could be obtained through services of an experienced outside professional. Hint, hint. Number five, a checklist will suffice for the risk analysis uh, requirement. Also false, checklists can be useful tools, especially when starting a risk analysis, but they fall short of performing a systemic I'm sorry, systematic security risk analysis or documenting one has been performed. Number six, there's a specific risk analysis method that I must follow. 
Obviously, that's false. A risk analysis can be performed in countless ways. OCR has issued guidance on risk analysis requirements of the security rule. This guidance assists organizations in identifying and implementing the most effective and appropriate safeguards to protect and secure ePHI. So that's electronic personal health information. Number seven, my security risk analysis only needs to look at my EHR. False. Review all electronic devices that store, capture, or modify electronic protecting, protected health information, including include your EHR hardware and software. So if you have your EHR hosted locally, you'll need to include that. And devices that can access your EHR. So if you have an iPad that you're accessing it with, or a laptop, or even your smartphone, then you need to include that in the security risk analysis. Remember that copiers also store data. There have been hacks of that in the past. Please see U.S. Department of Health and Human Services guidance on remote use. So copiers is another big one. It's not hard, or fax machines. It's not hard to um, not hard to get information off of those. Um, number eight, I only need to do risk analysis once. This is false. To comply with HIPAA, you must continue to review, correct, or modify, and update security protections. For more on reassessing your security practices, please see the reassessing your security practice in health IT environment. So this is, again, this is on healthit.gov. So if you want to go and check out those different sections, you know, obviously do that if you're in healthcare because it's important. Um, it's recommended to do the risk analysis continually. So you identify things that need to be addressed, you address them, you do another security risk analysis until we're at, you're at a point where it doesn't need to be done continually. Then you do it you know, at least once a year. Number nine, before I test for an EHR incentive program, I must fully mitigate all risk, also false. So as I said, it's an ongoing process. You, you find the risks, you address them, you do another analysis. So false. The EHR incentive program requires correcting any deficiencies identified during the risk analysis during the reporting period as part of its risk management process. 10. Each year, I, I'll have to completely redo my security risk analysis. This is false. Perform the full security risk analysis as you adopt an EHR each year or when changes to your practice or electronic systems occur. Review and update the prior analysis for changes in risks. Under the Meaningful Use Programs, reviews are required for each EHR reporting period. For EPs, the EHR reporting period will be 90 days or a full calendar year, depending on the EP's year of participation in the program. So that's the top 10 myths for of security risk analysis. So some good information there. I hope that answers some questions. Um, this is up to date, so I know HIPAA itself has not been updated in quite some time and probably could use a refresh because things are not what they were when HIPAA was um, was first put into place. You know, the ransomware running rampant, the, the technology everywhere, the ability to access almost anything with a smartphone, all of these things were not present when HIPAA first rolled out. So it does need to be updated a little bit. It's a lot of common sense stuff, um, but common sense isn't so common I guess these days I uh, you know I, I worked with a, a mental health worker recently who and I'm being vague as possible here on purpose um, but they were not using a HIPAA compliant email they were using a free email software 
We got them off of that. We went to G Suite. They are now HIPAA compliant. They have a business associate agreement. They, um, what was the other thing? Oh, they were, so we also, they were using Dropbox, which is HIPAA compliant, but that's assuming you're doing everything else right and you have the BAA, which they did not know, so now they have that in place. Um, this is a one-person practice, so some things are a little bit different. You know, you gotta, you gotta treat it a little bit differently, but they are now, uh, there's still a couple of things we need to address, but they are definitely a few levels higher on the, on the HIPAA compliance. And I went over some things with, uh, with the provider themselves. So a one-person practice or a thousand-person practice, it doesn't matter. HIPAA is, is all about patient care. It's all about protecting the patients. It's not, it's not really meant to be a pain in the you-know-what. It's meant to protect patients. And we're seeing it every day, almost every day. The, the breaches and the, the PHI that's being exposed, and so that needs to be addressed and taken care of. Um, all right, so the next thing I want to talk about, law firm data retention and best practices. This will be a little bit quicker, but in Connecticut, this is specific to Connecticut because it's in some states it's 10, 10 years. In Connecticut, it's seven years. So all documents shall be kept seven years from the date of completion of services rendered by an attorney. Now, what that means is once a case closes, then the attorney is required to keep those documents on file for seven years. And after seven years... Then you can um, you can do with them as you know they usually get archived. So I'll tell you what 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 I typically do with law firms, with law firm clients. These documents are being um, so the smaller ones that don't have an on-prem server. Those those documents are being saved in the cloud, and then after seven years, so after they're no longer active, they get stored in um, an archival system. And then after seven years, they're, they're still stored. The cost to retain those documents, even you know, once the case is no longer active, is extremely minimal. So it's, it's not really costing any law firms too much money. Um, you know, then those that are stored locally, they'll they'll have an offsite backup for the same same with the same policies essentially. Um, along the lines of data retention. There are a few laws that went into effect a few years ago. The first is if there is a breach, there is a hard 90-day deadline to report that breach. Um, and that's for any business. That's not just law firms. So if you're breached, you have 90 days to report. There is some vague wording that says without unreasonable delay. Unreasonably delay is what it says. No, it says without unreasonable delay, there's a typo here. So that was in October 2015. Who's to determine what unreasonable delay is? It's, that's that's vague. So in 2017, they changed it to say a hard 90-day deadline. So all breaches should be reported within 90 days. And who you report to will, will be determined by what type of business you're in. So, you know, law firms are going to report to somebody different than healthcare and financial so you should know who you're supposed to report to but you have 90 days to do it and the breach can be one record or a million records it needs to be reported because the end user the record that's breached needs to be 
notified. You know, PCI, PCI DSS. If you if you your credit card information has been breached, and we will talk about PCI compliance in another show. Um, but if your credit card records have been breached, then you need to report that to those people that have been breached. So if I'm a small mom and pop shop that for some reason I'm, I'm keeping credit card records on file, you shouldn't be. But if you were, then you're going to want to re- report that breach, even if it's just one person, within 90 days. Now, one person, you probably less time than that, but report it. Um What other guidelines can I tell you for law firms specifically? Okay, again, you have the seven years, notwithstanding any, so here's some guidelines, file retention guidelines. Notwithstanding any of the other policies set forth, the retention or destruction of documents may be determined by written agreement between the attorney and the client. Uh, Number two, a copy of document need not be kept after the original has been returned to the client or other owner. Three, all documents shall be kept seven years from the date of completion of services rendered by an attorney. So I already, t- I already mentioned that. Number four, all original documents signed by the client and documents conferring or imposing legal rights or obligations shall be kept seven years from the date of such signing or the secession of such rights or obligations, whichever is longer. No such document shall be destroyed until the client or owner is mailed written notice at least 30 days before destruction of documents. So you cannot destroy documents without notifying the client at least 30 days before. Number five, documents may be copied and retained in any medium which accurately depicts the original document and from which accurate copies can be made. The originals of any documents so copied other than those documents set forth in paragraph four above. So I'm reading this from the Connecticut Bar Association website at ctbar.org. And obviously this applies specifically to Connecticut, but I would imagine that across the 50 states and uh, anything anything in the United States of America would be pretty similar. Any document, this is number six, any document which is kept as a permanent public record need not be kept after its, after its recording. That's because it's stored as public record. No such document shall be destroyed until the client or owner of the document is mailed, written notice at least 30 days before destruction of the document. And then finally, Number seven, subject to the above guidelines, upon termination of practice, any documents still being retained by the attorney should be returned to the client or the client notified of any successor attorney agreeing to take upon the obligations of retaining those documents. So if the attorney goes out of business or uh, what I see sometimes in Connecticut is a couple of attorneys will get together and form a, a bigger law firm, those documents need to either stay with the attorney or go to the successor attorney or be returned to the client. You can't just destroy them. So that's uh, law firm data retention and some some data retention information for everybody to keep in mind when, when uh, dealing with, with data, people's data. So most businesses have either PI, PII, personal, personally identifiable information, or PHI, personal health care information, you need to take care of it um, to make sure that it doesn't get into the wrong hands. And that's, uh, that's data retention for law firms. All right, next up we have um, remote access to electronic health records. So why did this come up? I'm seeing where 
I think I saw something about. I mean, so we're going to talk about Blue Keep next, where, um, which has to do with remote desktop protocol, which is a Microsoft protocol that allows you to remote into a Windows computer from another location. But there are some best practices for remote access to electronic health records. So first of all, remote access to anything should not be given to people that don't need it. So your uh, office receptionist should not have remote access to, to electronic health records. They shouldn't have access to electronic health records unless they're also a nurse or a uh, physician's assistant. But generally speaking, they're not, and they shouldn't have access to electronic health records. But if for some reason the receptionist does or anybody else in the practice does, here is the remote access to electronic health record best practices. First of all, and, and this, this applies to anything really, enact a two-step authentication for allowing remote access. If you're using an EHR, they should have um, two-step authentication, two-factor authentication or multi-factor authentication. And the best way to do that is either with a, a soft key, soft token, which is an app you can put on your phone, Microsoft, Google, Authy. Um, biometrics are great. So if you can set it up so that, you know, they have the soft token on their phone and then a biometric login to the phone, then that would be the best practice. Implement immediate session termination following a clinician signing in and being inactive for a predetermined amount of time. I know for a fact that people hate the uh, session termination but it's important to do it. You get up, you walk away, you're, you're wandering around, you forget what you were doing, and your laptop is open, you have records open uh, with PHI, and somebody else sits down and takes a look. Uh, and it could be as innocent as, you know, your wife is working on record, she gets up, walks away, and, you're, and the husband sits down and sees them, or the kids go, you know, the kids accidentally delete stuff, or... Now, now you have a, a HIPAA breach. Um, inaugurate personal firewall software on all laptops and machines that store protected health information or connect to networks where protected health information may be stored. So personal firewall software and security software um, should be installed. Place an embargo on clinicians from remotely accessing EHRs except in certain instances. Again, uh, this goes back to what I said earlier. If they don't need to access it, then they shouldn't. It's, it's really that simple, especially remotely. There's too much. It's harder to control what happens remotely um, versus what happens locally. Uh, not to say that local, you should be a little more lax. You shouldn't, but it's harder to control remotely than if you are in the office in the, in the healthcare practice. Uh, so those are remote access to healthcare record, electronic healthcare records, best best um, best practices. So make sure that you're following those. And again, it's, it really should you really should use the least privilege um, process. So if they don't need the access, then don't give it to them. Uh, and then um, so we're going to talk about Blue Keep. And you probably remember, now I just launched this podcast a couple weeks ago, so it wasn't discussed on this podcast, but if you pay attention at all to the cybersecurity world, then you've heard of Blue Keep. And a few months ago, Blue Keep was, was uh, talked about um, primarily because of Windows 7 and t Server 2008 vulnerabilities, but that's not to say it can't be 
compromised any other way. And what Bluekeep does is attacks the remote desktop protocol um, and, and exploits that. So what is remote desktop protocol? Uh, on Microsoft, on Windows machines, most Windows machines, uh, so let's, let's say professional version, enterprise version of uh, desktop, so Windows 10, Windows 7, Windows 8.1. Uh, so if you have a home, Windows Home license, this, you don't have the option to use remote desktop protocol. Um, on your machine, you can still remote into other machines. Um, and then server versions also have remote desktop protocol installed. You can turn this feature on and then be able to remote in to that server or desktop. Most likely it's a server. Okay, so you can remote in and it looks like you're actually sitting right there at the server or desktop. So you have a, a window on your computer where just like a browser window essentially and you're able to see the screen of your computer or server the same way you would if you were sitting right in front of it. You have access to the same things you would have access to normally. Uh, that's remote desktop protocol. Remote desktop protocol uses um, uses um, TCP port 3389. I don't know why TCP escaped my brain for a minute, but it uses TCP port 3389, uh, which just means that a, a rule needs to be created in the firewall to allow access through that port 3389. That's and, and that's the port that um, is normally used for remote desktop protocol. And then so the rule gets created and gets forwarded to the machine that it's allowed on. That is being exploited. Um, Earlier this year, the, the vulnerability was discovered, but it wasn't being exploited yet. So there was a lot, of, a lot of news about the potential for the exploit. People patched. People did what they were supposed to do. Um, but nothing ever came of it. So Bluekeep exploits the remote desktop protocol and then installs a cryptocurrency mining code on the uh, machine that it exploited. There's been no activity until this past week. So uh, a British researcher, Kevin Beaumont, raised the alarm this weekend after discovering that Blue Keep honeypots he had set up to act as an early alarm that the vulnerability was being exploited began to crash and reboot themselves. So a honeypot is um, sort of like a, um, what's the, how can I put it? So it's, it's a way to attract I mean, let's put it in those terms. So a honeypot, you're trying to attract a bear, right? In this case, you're trying to attack, you're trying to attract an attacker to see if they're actually on your system. Um, so, so there are services and software out there where you create a document that might look appealing. So I might create a document on my laptop that says uh, password dot doc. And so somebody who, if, if I suspect that somebody's on my network and I have this document that says password.doc, that's going to be appealing to someone on my network because now they think they've gotten a document with a list of usernames and passwords. That's a honeypot. So this researcher, Kevin Beaumont, created honeypots to see if anybody would attempt to um, use the Bluekeep vulnerability. And he noticed activity this week, this 
uh, this was reported on the 4th, so Monday. Or Sun, yeah, Monday. Um, so he wrote, I built a worldwide honeypot network to spot exploitation, which I called Blue Pot. Since then, it has been remarkably quiet. I've been keeping in contact with people at threat intelligence and anti-malware companies, and essentially the protection built has been eerily quiet. That isn't to say exploitation hasn't happened. Of course, advanced threat actors would absolutely look to leverage this, but there's been a complete lack of data to suggest any kind of widespread exploitation. That changed on October 23rd. One of the Blue Keep honeypots crashed and rebooted. Over the following weeks, all the honeypots crashed and rebooted, except one in Australia with increasing regularity. So, meaning there's activity. Okay. Um, he shared the details of what happened to his honeypots with Marcus Hutchins of Cryptos Logic, who determined that the attacks were using demo Blue Keep exploit code in an attempt to install Crypto Miner onto unpatched Windows computers. Again, a case for patching. Have patch management, have a patching program. Uh, if you have an MSP like Nuage Tech, they have a program where they are patching on a regular basis. Um, the good news is that the current attack appears to be flawed, cra crashing the computers it is attempting to infect rather than successfully installing the hacker's code. That also means that they're going to figure it out at some point. News first broke of Blue Keep vulnerability earlier this year when Microsoft took the unusual step of issuing patches for older versions of Windows. So they updated Windows 7 uh, and I believe even XP. At the time, it was reported that almost 1 million vulnerable PCs were connected to the Internet and potentially open to exploitation. Uh, the threat was considered serious enough that the likes of the NSA urged administrators and users to patch vulnerable computers. So that's why you might remember because government agencies were telling everybody patch or update. Uh, so if you're on Windows 7, your your time is running out if you're on Windows 7 still or server 2008 because end of life is about two and a half months away. Time to upgrade to just skip 8 and go right to 10. Okay. Um, let's see. What can we do to prevent the blue key vulnerability from being exploited? So it's not in this article, but I did post this uh, a few times this week, so I'm going to just go to my social media um, so I can share with you exactly. I, I can tell you off the top of my head, but there is the first thing is if you don't need um, if you don't need remote desktop protocol, don't use it. Turn it off. Turn it off. Okay, so on your Windows machine, disable it. That's really the best thing you can do for it. Disable remote desktop protocol if it's not being used. If it is being used, I'm still looking for the post I shared. If it is being used, then you're gonna want to secure it. So how do we secure it? Number one, only give it to people that that do that should have access, so it's not everybody should have it. it. Only the people that absolutely need it should have it. If you're going to remote desk, use the remote desktop protocol, then do it over VPN use duo or some other type of uh, multi-factor authentication make sure oh make sure you're up to date on patching so that's something i talk about every week again if you're still using windows 7 or 2008 it's time to update block port 3389 on your firewall so i didn't mention that block port 3389 on your firewall turn rdp off if it's not on if it's not necessary so 3389 should not be open to the public you should not have it open on the firewall out to the public 
And if your machine doesn't use RDP, then it should be turned off. And if it does, you should be using VPN. And then enable network level authentication. This will give you another uh, method of uh, authentication being required before you can get in. So you might be able to RDP into a machine, but you still won't have access to the whole network. Uh, so that's BlueKeep, and that, uh, that's the vulnerability that since it's already impacting honeypots, I would imagine it's also impacting other unpatched machines, and they will eventually figure it out, and then you can bet it's going to be a, a big problem for some people. Uh, since, since the NSA and other government agencies warned about it many months before it was actually being actively exploited, I don't think it'll be at the levels of WannaCry. You may, be, you may remember WannaCry a couple of years ago and how many machines were impacted, and um, mostly in Europe and uh, Russia where a lot of businesses were impacted uh, significantly, a lot of lost productivity. And then a security researcher found a way to stop it, and that was a whole nother big story. So maybe I'll do that as an episode, the WannaCry story. Um, not enough time today to go over that, but if you recall how big of a deal that was, then I don't think it'll reach those levels, but it is going to be impactful to some some businesses, I'm sure, that have not moved away from Windows 7 or Server 2008, or uh, even in some cases XP. I think there's like a still le just under 2% usage of Windows XP. And, and I have a Windows XP virtual machine, but I don't use it for anything except testing. Um, so patch and and uh, make sure you're using every security method that that's available to you to make sure that you are not going to fall victim to blue keep all right that's going to do it for episode three i thought we were going to be a little longer today but i got through it every i got through everything pretty quickly uh episode four next week obviously until then have a great week stay secure stay educated and uh, I will talk to you again next week if I don't go live somewhere before. Uh -huh.